0: there. I'm your friend Bev, host of Stop Psychoanalyzing Me, a podcast about mental health. I interview experts and ask questions about mental disorders that all of us might be curious about. Come join me. Our next guest is Dr. Sarah Dermody, who is an assistant professor and the director of the Clinical Addictions Research and Equity Laboratory at Ryerson University in Toronto. Dr. Dermody's research investigates the risk factors and treatments for substance use and addiction in youth and adults. Welcome to the show, Dr. Dermody.
1: My pleasure. This is a topic that's really important to me, and I'm glad that people want to learn more about it.
0: Absolutely. So, maybe before we jump into the conversation, I'd love to hear some background on you. From my understanding, you are an expert in addictions. Yeah, I've
1: been studying addiction as a researcher for 15 years, and my work has focused quite a bit on understanding alcohol use and tobacco use specifically, what leads people to use these substances, what are the harms from using these substances, and how can we best help them when they need to stop or reduce their use and I've also approached addiction as a clinician as well so I have a degree in clinical psychology and I've worked in treatment settings trying to help people reduce their use of a variety of substances: so tobacco alcohol marijuana for example.
0: It sounds like you've dedicated a lot of your life to studying and treating folks with addictions. And what is an addiction? What exactly is that?
1: It may seem like a basic question, but while there is a general consensus or understanding of what addiction is, there's also a lot of disagreement about Mm -hmm. what must happen for us to say that someone has an addiction to. So it is complicated. Uh, So I'll just start and say what is more or less agreed upon by clinicians and researchers in this field. People by and large agree that addiction is a repeated and long-term involvement in a substance or activity even though it causes a lot of distress or negatively impacts someone's life or the lives around them. More and more, We're seeing that addiction isn't just something that people can experience when they use substances or drugs like alcohol, tobacco, marijuana, heroin, opioids, and so on. But we're recognizing that activities are also things that people can become addicted with. For instance, gambling is one that we have, as a scientific and clinical community, had found enough evidence that people can also be addicted to gambling behavior.
0: I I don't think I ever thought of a behavior being something necessarily that could be addictive, so to speak. I think sometimes when I think about quote-unquote addictive behaviors, I think about when people say, oh, I have a shopping addiction. Do you think a behavior like shopping or even playing video games, could those be addictions too? Does that count? Yeah, I'm definitely open
1: to those ideas and Hmm. there are a couple of reasons why. Well, a lot of the, the research that we've done to understand what causes addiction demonstrate that there's certain regions of the brain that are, let's say, that respond to substances that people become addicted to. And these same regions of the brain are ones that are responsible to drive us to do different types of behaviors, like eat, have sex, engage in social interactions. So with that in mind, why would we limit our understanding of addiction to be only of substances or chemicals. Couldn't it be that other behaviors and activities that activate or lead those brain regions to respond in a similar way could also lead to an addiction?
0: I think a lot of us think about an addiction, you know, maybe being to a substance, something that we ingest or take in in the body. And you're actually saying that some of the same brain regions light up or are active when they're in some sort of brain scanner when folks are doing even just certain behaviors like shopping right or like playing video games
1: yes so there are researchers trying to evaluate whether people can actually be addicted to shopping or addicted to video games and they're These behaviors are ones that are being actively investigated while we don't currently recognize them as being addictions in one of the main unifying documents that we use to help describe whether something is addiction or not is the DSM five. So currently those are not recognized in this diagnostic manual as being addictions, but they are mentioned as areas of future study because there's at least some evidence to suggest that when people, that some people engage in these behaviors in a way that looks a lot like addiction to substances.
0: Why do some people have addictions and some don't? How come some people can chop and it's Okay for them, and then other people might start overspending in sort of a compulsive, if you will, way that leads to a lot of problems.
1: Yes, this is an incredibly important question, and one that I am trying to answer in my research is trying to Mm -hmm. understand why certain people are at a greater risk of developing addiction than others. And so you bring up shopping, and we can also talk about even alcohol as an example. Most Mm. people at some point in their lives try alcohol. It's the vast majority that have sampled it at least, if not (laughs) drank with some regularity. But only a minority ever develop an alcohol use disorder or an addiction to alcohol. It's a big minority, about one in three individuals in their lifetime develop an alcohol use disorder. So it's pretty common, but still not the majority. And there may be many different factors that may lead one person that drinks alcohol with regularity to develop an addiction, whereas somebody else would not. So some of these might be genetic and biological differences that affect how much someone enjoys alcohol or Mm. how somebody, how strong the effects of alcohol are when they consume it and how likely are they going to be to have some of the negative effects from drinking. We also know that there could be psychological factors and experiences that could increase one's risk for developing an alcohol use disorder. For instance, having another mental health diagnosis like depression could put somebody at a risk.
0: Even having another disorder could make you more likely to develop an addiction?
1: Yes. So the the relationship's a a bit complex because we do see that people with substance use disorders are more likely to also have other mental health diagnoses and. Depending on the circumstance, it could be that the addiction developed because of the mental health diagnosis. It's possible that the mental health diagnosis is a consequence of the addiction. It's also possible that there was a life experience like severe trauma that could have simultaneously increased the risk of developing both of these um, disorders. Because we know, for instance, that being assaulted physically or sexually is related to developing depression, just as it's related to developing a substance use disorder. So there are these kind of like common risk factors across many mental health diagnoses.
0: Okay. And I'm wondering if, you know, you sometimes hear people say, I drink to escape the pain, or I drink because I'm sad and drinking makes me less sad. There's this idea of escaping an emotion. Is that part of it? Is that what you mean by the psychological piece?
1: Yes. So one of the, there are many different theories or frameworks or models used to try to explain why people become addicted to substances or activities. One of them is focused on this escape from negative emotions. The idea is that people may learn to use substances repeatedly in order to reduce these negative feelings that they would have otherwise. So these negative feelings could be from uh, trauma, stress, other mental illnesses, for example.
0: So it might make sense that then that someone who's really depressed might use alcohol or use a drug to deal with some of those feelings, and then it can actually become an addiction, which has a, its own host of problems associated with it.
1: Yes, unfortunately, that these disorders can come together and then make things even more complicated. And what we, what I want to make sure to clarify too is that while People might be driven to use substances in order to cope with mental illness. We typically see that substances worsen mental health symptoms as Mm -hmm. opposed to help improve them. So even though people might say that they use drinking to cope with stress and depression, in the long term, we see that drinking alcohol heavily will actually worsen those depression symptoms and increase stress so it is not it's not an effective way to to cope with those types of symptoms
0: so maybe it's like a quick fix in the short term but then in the long term it actually ends up harming other people and that was part of the definition of an addiction if i remember correctly off the top
1: yes, yeah, can harm themselves, can harm the people around them, either immediate family members and friends and significant others, or even just people in the community more broadly could be harmed.
0: I hear people say is that they have a quote-unquote addictive personality. Maybe they engage in a behavior and then they find it really, really fun and they want to keep doing it and they notice they have a tendency to keep doing that behavior. And it might be something simple like playing a video game. So I guess I'm wondering, is there such a thing as an addictive personality? and, And maybe... Part of this question, too, is if you notice yourself becoming addicted to something, like how can you start to stop that behavior?
1: Well, let's start with, is there an addictive personality? And if so, what is it? Decades ago, there was quite a bit of research on this idea of an addictive personality, and there were different names for it, with the idea being that there just seemed to be certain people that were more likely to develop addictions than other people. And there was even a concern that if they got treatment for one addiction, that they would just gravitate to another Mm -hmm. addictive substance or activity, and that must be because they have an addictive personality. Research has not supported this notion of an addictive personality. There doesn't seem to be a like a single personality trait or pattern that leads to someone to be like at a very high risk for developing addiction. That being said, there is a relationship between personality and addiction risk, but it is just more more nuanced and complex. So, we know that some people who are more impulsive, maybe more extroverted, maybe so more interested in like social interactions. Okay, I'm uh, picturing like
0: a frat boy or something.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and um, people who have who are high in neuroticism, so have difficulty coping with negative emotions, okay. they might be at a greater risk for developing addiction than people mm. without those personality traits. But it's not an addictive personality per se.
0: Okay, so that's sort of a misnomer then that phrase because I hear it all the time. People will say I have an addictive personality because I do X thing, and I've always been curious. Like, well, what does that mean? Do you is that a thing? And it sounds like it isn't really a thing.
1: Yeah, I would say that's one of those uh, uh, myths in the publicly held myths about addiction, and I do think it has some appeal. It it helps people try to understand why mm-hmm. certain people are developing addiction versus not, but it's not something that we're supporting in research.
0: Okay, and, and this leads to this the second question I had, which is, well, why do some people have these addictions and some don't? If there's no such thing as an addictive personality, why are some people just so much more prone to an addiction than others?
1: I think this definitely relates to something that I was describing earlier with the idea being that people differ at a biological level, at a psychological level, and in their life experiences. And those factors each can contribute to increase or decrease someone's risk for developing an addiction. So those what I I like to think about is if you think about a person and all of these factors, the more and more risk factors that they either were born with or developed Mm -hmm. through their life experiences would accumulate and make it more likely that they would develop an addictive disorder. That being said, it's still not a guarantee. We still even see people who have had so much adversity in their life. They had, their parents had substance use disorders. And even in that context, they do not develop uh, substance use disorders or addictions. So having those risk factors isn't an inevitable thing either. So an important area of research that I think still needs to be continued is understanding When people have all those risk factors, what leads to resilience or continued strength, growth, and positive health in the absence of addiction?
0: Well, I can imagine some people would see what the addiction has done to their parents, and they might wish to be nothing like them. Or maybe vice versa, someone sees that their family members use, whether it's a substance or engage in some sort of behavior, and to maybe be closer to them they might also engage in that behavior. So I, I can see it going both ways, actually.
1: Yeah, and I and I think it's a it's another common misunderstanding when thinking about the genetic impacts of having a parent or a family member that has a history of addiction to think that it would be almost an inevitability that you would also develop or be very vulnerable to developing addictions and for the reasons that you just described it's a lot more complicated than that you may not inherit whatever those genetic vulnerabilities were there are going to be other life experiences that may lead you to be less likely to use substances at all just looking at the genetic factors is not enough when understanding genetic when understanding the risk for developing addiction
0: so you mentioned earlier that alcohol use and I think you called it alcohol use disorder. So I'm guessing that means like an alcohol addiction. Was it one in 3 people develop one in their lifetimes?
1: Yes, about one in 3 based on data in the US and Canada. So wow. there there is variability. There is there are differences between cultures and and countries. And I'm not as well versed in the rates in other countries to speak to that.
0: Okay. And I'm guessing there are differences in the severity level too, you know, because just to hear that number one in three adults at some point in their lives have an addiction to alcohol, uh, I'm guessing maybe some folks are more severe, but then others maybe have a milder addiction. I'm not quite sure what the terminology is, but is that correct?
1: Yes. So this these rates that I'm saying one in 3 are based on national surveys where they collect data from thousands of adults and have them complete these interviews asking about symptoms related to these disorders. And they're asked, have you ever experienced them in your lifetime within mm. like a 12-month time frame?" So it's not that they just experienced these symptoms, but that they happened at a close enough time period together that we would think of it as a disorder. And okay. so we see, we say one in three, about one in three, but that will include people that had very relatively mild versions of an alcohol use disorder that they may have never needed to get treatment just for it to just resolve itself. They, okay. I think a good example of this is you had mentioned fraternity or sorority mm. members, for instance. Heavy drinking is pretty common in the college context. And people drink at heavy enough rates and experience consequences that they would meet the criteria for an alcohol use disorder many of those individuals, they graduate uh, university, they're no longer in those contexts, and they don't continue on to experience those problems. So while they would have met criteria for a disorder at one point in their life, it's not necessarily a long-term concern that they had to cope with.
0: Dr. Dermody, you keep mentioning this idea of criteria, and I'm just wondering, what are some of these criteria, if you don't mind, just sharing with us? Because I've definitely heard people say things like, oh, you're an alcoholic if you drink three days straight or you're an alcoholic if you drink alone. And my guess is that the DSM, which sounds like the big book of mental disorders, this diagnostic manual, I'm guessing it doesn't say (laughs) those things, but I think there are a lot of myths about what it means to be a quote-unquote alcoholic or have an addiction. So I was just wondering if you could share Like how are therapists or how are doctors evaluating whether someone has an addiction or not?
1: Yes. So in order to diagnose somebody with a substance use disorder, it's important that they meet with a licensed professional. So that could be a a medical doctor, a psychiatrist, a clinical psychologist who would ask them Key questions in order to determine whether or not they have uh, what we would diagnose as a substance use disorder. And so, when I say diagnostic criteria, those are the symptoms that some doctor or clinician would ask about in order to determine if they have a disorder or not. Okay. So, this includes, there are 11 different symptoms. Oh, wow. Um,
0: 11. 11. That's actually a lot.
1: Yes. (laughs) And someone would have to have at least two of those symptoms in a year period in order to be diagnosed with a substance use disorder. So just briefly, like some of the ones that Mm -hmm. you might want to know about. So there are symptoms related to Difficulty controlling one's use of the substance. So they're like taking it in larger amounts or over a longer period of time than they wanted to. Oh, Difficulty wow, okay. cutting down their use of the substance. Reoccurring repeated use that's leading someone to not be able to complete their job or mm. causes conflict at home or in other relationships. And then there are other symptoms like withdrawal, where someone with repeated use of the substance, when they stop using the substance, they might experience a a number of negative, uncomfortable symptoms. So that's withdrawal. And then tolerance is a, a symptom that can also occur where someone needs to take more and more of the drug in order to get the same intoxicating effect as they used to
0: and I can see how some of these symptoms would be maybe difficult to assess if it's something more behavioral I'm wondering how could you fully assess tolerance in a shopping disorder but at the same time it sounds like some of these behavioral quote-unquote addictions really do act in similar ways to the substances
1: Yes and with gambling disorder as an example we see that people who are not able to gamble like they usually do they can show a withdrawal syndrome just like someone who it can't use a substance like they usually do wow. so they might have negative mood irritability anxiety for example so there are similarities and we can also see that similar types of consequences can occur with these behavioral addictions of negatively affecting one's job, school, home, life, and this persistent difficulty in controlling the behavior even when someone really is trying to limit the behavior.
0: opinion, what are some common addictions that might go under the radar or might be more prevalent than we think? What One thing I'm thinking of, and, and I'd love your thoughts on, is social media. I know there's a recent Netflix documentary called The Social Dilemma, and it talks about how behavioral scientists would use techniques to keep folks engaged on their device for longer and longer, and it sounds to me almost like even social media use could be thought of as an addiction. And so I guess my question though for you is really, what are some addictions that we might not even be thinking about or might go under the radar, and is social media one of them?
1: I mentioned earlier that you know alcohol use disorder is much more common than I think people tend to believe or recognize. Also uh, tobacco use disorder is one that I think people think isn't as much of an issue anymore as it used to be. And while that's true, people aren't smoking cigarettes as much as they did 50 years ago. But we still see about 15% of the population in Canada and the U.S. smoking cigarettes daily and likely meeting the criteria for tobacco use disorder. And it's still the leading cause of death for both of these countries. So I think those are substances that are legal, widely available, but are causing people a lot of problems. Mm -hmm. You brought up social media addiction, this idea that was highlighted in a recent documentary. And I personally think that more research needs to be done to see to what extent people are actually addicted to social media as opposed to the programs being designed in a way that it's difficult for you not to pay attention to it. And I was just trying to think about a good analogy related to that, but it it's almost like what if there's like a foghorn in your room and it'd be very hard to tune that out um, right. and not focus on it and it might disrupt right. you in some ways I think about the Facebook app as being kind of like a a foghorn with all of the notifications and so mm-hmm. on so for many people if they're able to dial down those those Attention, those features that really draw us into using the app, that Mm -hmm. they wouldn't necessarily spend as much time on it. But there might be a subset of people who, even in the absence of those notifications and tailored alerts, have major trouble regulating, controlling their use of the apps and would experience major social work disruptions. And that subset of individuals very well could be addicted to those types of apps. Uh, And there are people researching this to better understand whether this is an addiction or not. And there are definitely researchers that believe that it is an addiction, but it's a pretty new area of study and more research Mm -hmm. is needed, I think, for us to know for certain.
0: Well, these things have proliferated really over the last couple decades. So it makes sense there isn't a lot of research out out there on this. Um, Super interesting. And Dr. Dermody, I know that you are also a clinician. And when I spoke to a few people about this podcast episode, what they really wanted to know is, how do we help folks with an addiction? Let's say we have a family member or a friend and we're noticing that they have some of these behaviors you've been talking about. So maybe they drink excessively and maybe they're distracted at work and and we're concerned about these people. Do you have any advice or knowledge about what we could do as a concerned friend for folks like this?
1: It's important to express your concern to that individual in a way that is focused on what you've observed and what those concerns are, trying not to be judgmental Mm. and really try to come from a perspective of I care about you and I'm noticing these things happening and want to see if you've noticed it too or what your thoughts are about it. So coming, I think, from a perspective of caring and wondering and curiosity can be really helpful in starting these conversations.
0: Mm-hmm. Is you, we don't want to blame people. Maybe they would feel judged if you were on the attack. of people. Yes, exactly.
1: Uh, trying not to be blaming, trying not to be judging is really important. It's also the case that addictions can be just like with other mental illness associated with stigma or negative beliefs and attitudes. So someone may be very hesitant or concerned about talking about these experiences that they've had because of their fears of negative input or feedback or interactions with others. So I think coming from that place of caring is really important it's also it's going to depend a little bit about the specific situation, but I think right. it's important to recognize that sometimes it takes time for somebody to process what you may have told them before they're ready to talk about it more and even seek additional help. So, assuming that safety isn't like a major imminent concern, then giving the person a little bit of time to process the conversation before following up with them and providing, you know, maybe you've been able to find some resources for them that you could share with them, depending on your relationship with them.
0: Mm -hmm. This is sometimes a more tragic outcome. But if someone really isn't willing to give up their addiction, or they're not ready to have this conversation, is there ever a point when you would recommend taking more serious action, maybe going to this person's family or even maybe calling the police on them. I, I could imagine maybe being in a situation where you might be really overwhelmed and not sure what to do. If, if you see someone you care about really struggling, but who's unwilling to get help.
1: It is a very challenging position to be in. And it's one that I've been in myself knowing And recognizing that somebody has difficulty using a substance. And even when you're able to, I think in a hopefully supportive way, share your concerns with them. And they might even recognize that it's a problem, but they aren't ready to do anything about it. It's just a very challenging position to be in. Mm -hmm. And I do think one way to navigate it is to try to find other supports to encourage the person to seek help. But I think that what we find is that when someone's not ready to to receive treatment, undue force can really have a negative effect on the person and can actually lead them to even be more resistant to changing their substance use behavior. So I would, you know, Hesitate to really overwhelm the person with information about treatment and even, like you mentioned, calling the police unless it's clearly a life-threatening situation for that person or for the people around them. At that point, of course, I think it would make sense to use emergency services to help with the situation if it's looking like it could be a a life or death situation.
0: So what I'm really hearing is just an attitude of non-judgmentalness and support and maybe being creative in using different resources for this person. Maybe it could involve like enlisting other friends to talk to them or maybe it could involve giving them some information though it really sounds like we would want to emphasize this really non-judgmental stance or attitude when speaking with this person who might not be ready to have this conversation
1: yes i think that's it remaining non-judgmental being as supportive as possible and when the situation arises potentially bringing in other loved ones that are close to this individual. But it's just important to keep in mind that revealing this type of information about an individual could have negative implications Mm. for them. So you have to be very mindful for who you would share this information with, particularly if they're not, if that person's not on board with you talking to other people about what's happening. But as I mentioned, if it looks like this could become a life-threatening situation, then I would not hesitate to tell those family members and get professional help in what other, whatever way is possible.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much for this information. Dr. Dermody, just to conclude this interview, is there anything else that you think is important for our listeners to know about addictions?
1: I think it's important that people be as educated about substance use and addiction as they can, because it's something that affects almost everybody, whether it's something that they Mm. experience themselves or a loved one or a friend, or just an issue that comes up in the community. It's something that we cannot ignore. Mm. And A good starting place is this podcast. There are websites hosted by eminent researchers and research institutes on addiction. So government-based and sponsored websites that can provide really helpful information if you want to learn more about addiction.
0: I'm definitely going to check a few of those out because this has been a very illuminating conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your wisdom on this topic. I, th- I think it's really important. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. And that was today's episode. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was hosted by Bev Catherine and produced by Yuri Halladio. Podcasting isn't free. Consider supporting the podcast by becoming a patron on patreon.com. You'll get early access to episodes and other exclusive content. You can find us on patreon.com slash stop psychoanalyzing me. Until next time!